Hello and welcome to Words of Wisdom, a podcast dedicated to reflecting on the wisdom of the Book of Proverbs. Your host is Dr. Jerry Weirwool, who will share life-giving truth from Proverbs that will help us become wise and discerning. Wisdom is a journey, and we hope you will join us for this exciting adventure. Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a person, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. Initially, it might seem as if this proverb is structured according to antithetic parallelism, where there's a simple contrast being made between the two lines. However, upon closer inspection, there's actually more of a synthetic parallelism at work here. Now, don't get me wrong, there is certainly a contrast being made in the proverb, but the second line is not simply stating an antithesis to the first. Rather, the second line is complementing and completing the thought of the proverb. As we examine the proverb, we'll see how the two lines work together to teach us wisdom. First, the proverb begins with the phrase, bread gained by deceit. The Hebrew can be translated literally as bread of deceit. The word bread is being used here as a synecdoche for any sort of material goods. A synecdoche is where a specific sample of a broader category is mentioned, but the broader category is what is meant, even though only one specific example of it is given. What this means in the proverb is that bread is only being used as one example of the broader category of material goods. And so the proverb is not limiting the meaning to just bread alone, but to any material gain in general. Bread is well suited to function in this capacity because in the ancient culture, bread was considered to be one of the most fundamental household goods and a basic staple food of all people. Therefore, since bread simply represents any unspecified food or goods, we can replace it with really any commodity or object in the proverb. Now, the important thing being made is that this bread is not just any generic bread. It is the bread of deceit. Now, there are a number of different ways we can understand this construction from the Hebrew. One way the phrase could be understood is meaning deceitful bread, referring to something that appears to be bread, but actually is not. It is false bread. Other ways that the phrase could be understood, they all deal with some sort of relation between bread and deceit, such as bread that produces deceit, bread that is filled with deceit, bread that comes from deceit, bread that corresponds to deceit, or bread that proves to be deceit, and, and others. From the overall context of the proverb, it seems best to understand this construction as a genitive of instrument where deceit is the means or instrument by which one acquires bread. And thus, that meaning is represented by the translation, bread gained by deceit. The same idea being conveyed in this phrase is also mentioned in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2, where it says, treasures gained by wickedness profit nothing. The first phrase is literally translated as treasures of wickedness, where wickedness is the means or instrument whereby one acquires the treasures. Next, back in Proverbs 20, 17, we can perceive the use of a dining metaphor where eating the bread gained by deceit is said to be sweet to a person. The metaphor of the bread tasting sweet relates to a person consuming it and their experience of it. What this refers to is the sensation and the experience of the one who obtains this material gain through deceptive means. This bread of deceit is pleasant to them and delightful. It is something satisfying and enjoyable to a person. 
this metaphor about something being sweet is still one that's popularly used today. We call all kinds of things sweet that we like or that are enjoyable experiences, such as, if I would say, our family reunion last weekend was a sweet time together for everyone. Or, the drawing that my niece gave me of her and I at the park was really sweet of her. Or, nothing is sweeter than getting that long-awaited promotion at work. Or how about, I can't believe the sweet deal I got on this new TV. Moreover, because something that tastes sweet is such a positive experience for us, it produces in us a desire for it. Therefore, there is a strong aspect of desirability that accompanies something that is characterized as being sweet. In essence, the proverb is picturing this bread gained by deceit as something desirable, and when obtained, it is savored like a delicious morsel of food, or perhaps better yet, like a rich dessert that tantalizes our taste buds. But as the second line of the proverb then enters the picture, this delectable bread of deceit apparently does not remain sweet to a person. It reads, afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. The dining metaphor continues here by picturing the person eating, but it turns the delightful image of enjoying an appealing and pleasant dish into the disturbing experience of having a mouth filled with gravel. Okay, so the first question that comes to my mind is, does anyone actually know what gravel tastes like? I mean, really. I know there is some famous recipe for stone soup, so... I guess perhaps gravel salad may not be so bad after all. All right, all right, I'm, I'm just being facetious and kidding. I'm sure if anyone has actually ever had gravel in their mouth, they would have a thing or two to say about how unpleasant and disgusting it was. And that is the exact point that the proverb is trying to make. Even worse, though, than the taste of gravel in our mouth is the harmful effects upon our teeth when we try to chew it. I have never actually had gravel in my mouth, at least none that I'm aware of, except perhaps maybe when I was a, a baby and would put everything I found in my mouth. But I have had sand in my mouth before. Yeah, I've learned a lesson or two about what happens if you leave your mouth open while diving when playing sand volleyball. A mouthful of sand is a very unpleasant experience. Even after rinsing my mouth out several times with water, I could still feel the little particles of sand grinding between my teeth. If any of you have ever had sand in your mouth, just imagine how much worse and more damaging it would be if the sand was a hundred times larger, because that would be gravel. So why is the proverb using this metaphor? The second line is intended here to depict the harsh and devastating effects of gaining something illegitimately. This refers to the bread of deceit. In the beginning, things that are obtained through corrupt and evil means, they might seem enjoyable and beneficial to a person, but eventually the reality of its harm is revealed. It soon becomes gravel in a person's mouth. The deceptive means used to get what we want, they seem to promise a pleasing and rewarding outcome, but in the end it will morph into its true form. It'll be stones that grind and crack our teeth which figuratively refer to severe personal loss and injury. Thus, the one who deceives others for their own benefit and advantage will eventually suffer the consequences and be worse off on account of their wickedness. In order to illustrate this proverb, 
I want to share with you the experience of a man named Jeffrey Skilling. Skilling was born in 1953 in Pennsylvania as the second of four children in his family. After graduating high school, Skilling went on to earn a Bachelor of Science in Applied Science from Southern Methodist University, and then he earned an MBA from Harvard Business School in 1979. Upon finishing his schooling, Skilling went to work for the global management consulting firm McKinsey & Company. After a decade of working at McKinsey & Company, Skilling was hired by a large energy and commodities corporation based in Houston, Texas. Using his astute business sense and expert management ability, Skilling successfully rose through the ranks quickly and was promoted to president and chief operating officer in 1997, where he led the company in a very aggressive investment strategy. By the year 2000, the company revenue was over $27 billion per quarter. That is over $100 billion in annual revenue. To put that more in perspective, it was over twice the revenue of any competitor company. Under Skilling's management and leadership, the company was being recognized left and right for its massive expansion and ambitious projects. It was even named America's most innovative company by Fortune magazine for six consecutive years, from 1996 to the year 2001. However, the recession of the year 2000, it began to dramatically affect the company's assets and investments. After seeing the writing on the wall, Skilling decided to resign in August of 2001 during the California energy crises, and he sold off almost $60 million worth of shares of the company. Well, this spelled the beginning of the end for the company, and the company diminished rapidly, ending in bankruptcy at the end of the year in December of 2001. The company name was Enron. And what had led to the fatal end of this once enormously prosperous energy company was the devious and deceptive financial accounting practices implemented by Skilling in 1992, soon after being hired at Enron. Using what is known as a mark-to-market accounting method, Skilling was able to manipulate the financial reports of Enron to make it seem like it was significantly more profitable than it was in reality. The mark-to-market method is not based on the actual value of an asset or a security, but the fair market value, which has a degree of subjectivity inherent in it and is harder to pin down and validate. What Skilling did was when Enron invested in an asset like a new power plant, he would claim the projected profits of that company on Enron's books, even though Enron had not received one penny of revenue from that asset. And if the actual revenue of the asset turned out to be less than the projected value, he would transfer the asset's loss to an off-the-books subsidiary corporation to incur the loss on behalf of Enron, thereby enabling the loss to go unreported on Enron's books. In this way, Skilling was able to hide Enron's losses and debt from hurting its bottom line and portray the company as being much more profitable and successful than it really was. Well, this attracted many investors to Enron, but after Skilling sold his $60 million of shares, the company's stock plummeted. And just before declaring bankruptcy in December of 2001, Enron's stock was worth only pennies. Enron went from having $63.4 billion in assets to being the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history in less than four years.
The fall of Enron cost investors $74 billion, 20,000 people their jobs, and in many cases, people lost their life savings. Needless to say, the effect of Skilling's deception and Enron's collapse was nothing short of catastrophic. While Skilling made an enormous profit on the sale of his shares of Enron, this isn't the end of the story for him. As Enron's stock began to plummet in the fall of 2001, and Enron began to close down a number of its subsidiaries, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, they became suspicious of the company and announced that they were going to investigate Enron's activities. The SEC uncovered Enron's fraudulent accounting practices and several of Enron's executives were charged and convicted of fraud. Skilling, who was convicted of 18 counts of fraud and conspiracy and one count of insider trading, ultimately received the harshest sentence of being fined $45 million and sentenced to 24 years in prison, which was later reduced to 14 years with an additional $42 million in restitution to be turned over to the victims of his fraud. Now, we all know that many people get away with their crimes and do not end up tasting the bitter pain of punishment for what they did. But we know that one day they will. For at the judgment, God will execute justice, and each person who got away with hurting others will receive due punishment for what they have done. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he himself who examines the hearts discern it? Does not he himself who guards your soul know it? Will he not repay a person according to his work? This is certainly the truth. No one can feign ignorance before Yahweh our God because he sees everything we do and he will repay a person according to their works and thus he will not let the guilty go unpunished. In conclusion, the point of Proverbs 20.17 is a person might enjoy the spoils of their crime for a while and what is gained from it might appear satisfying and worth the effort and risk involved. But that is not what wisdom teaches us. The person who uses wickedness and evil to get what they want is actually the one who is deceived, for the long-term consequences seem inconsequential at the moment, and they do not recognize that what seems sweet will in the end leave them with cracked teeth and a bitter taste in their mouth. Ill-gotten gain will eventually turn out to be disappointing and harmful, whether that happens now or in the future. The road of wickedness promises great things, and it can be attractive because of the sweet taste it seems to offer. But we will only find emptiness and suffering at the end. We should not learn this lesson the hard way. Wisdom teaches us that hard work, steady savings, and righteous conduct in life is the way to accrue true wealth that lasts. Don't take the bait and be enticed by the bread of deceit, for it will eventually reward you with nothing but ruin and misery. This is the wisdom of the proverb. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Words of Wisdom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would be so appreciative if you would share this podcast with your friends. And if you have been blessed by this work, please consider supporting the podcast by clicking on the donation link in the description.